But it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's, not really no this is This is the best seat now. It's, it's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> All right, well, cross our fingers. Here we go. Here we go. So the internets have been abuzz with this video of the airplane hitting the car. Jeb, you put this on the list. Yeah. And then yeah. after I saw you put it on the list, I noticed that a bunch of you, I think somebody t- called it to our attention in the forums, and uh, and it's been all over the place. It's kind of an interesting video, and uh, and and uh, I'll be interested to hear what you guys have to say about this. I did a little research, and I think I might have a contrarian view on this whole thing. But Well, what, what, I think... I, I think um the pilot uh, was probably a little low. Yeah, I think the pilot was very low. So for, for people who aren't clued in here, haven't seen this video, it's a, uh, what is it, like a Skyhawk of some sort uh, coming in for a landing at a little private airport in uh, Texas, Ro- Roanoke, Texas, which faked me out for a minute. It's not Roanoke, Virginia, Roanoke, Texas. And uh, and there's a, there's a road, there's a private road that's there's no airport fence this is just sort of one of those open airports and the road goes very very close to the end of the runway and there are reportedly the words stop written on the pavement um but in this particular instance uh, just as this aircraft was coming in for a landing um a car just drove right past the stop signs if you will um and you couldn't have timed it better or worse because just exactly as the airplane was coming across the fence and over this road the car passed underneath it and uh, it could have been incredibly tragic um what it ended up doing was taking the landing gear uh, off of the airplane and it kind of flopped in on its belly and skid to a halt and uh um and uh, i i think you know as pilots it seems to me it's our natural you know to kind of say well that darn car what what was he doing why didn't he stop um but i did a little research and i that airport and i gave you guys a couple links um that airport has a has a a pretty good displaced threshold um on that on that runway end and uh, if this guy was about to touch down right at the beginning of the pavement which is what it looked like then he was touching down way early and uh well, um, I don't know whether the pilot's um, intended touchdown point. I do know that um, he didn't do anything wrong relative to touching down short of the uh, displaced threshold until you know he collided with the car. So it could well be that he was he was coming in for a rather low uh, and slow pass. Or wanted to get the airplane down closer to ground effect sooner rather than later in his approach. There may have been a good operational reason for it. It may have been related to his wife standing by with the video camera. Yeah, and that's okay. by the way it got, why it got caught on video. Is that right? Which is how I got caught on video. This was some so, sort of solo training flight, apparently, according to the news. I understood report. it to be like return of a cross country or, or a local. local yeah, something like that. Is, I think the words they used was uh, solo. I forget. They used a funny terminology on it, but uh, they did use the word solo and that they, he is a student, but then they referred to him as being four weeks from his private pilot, which is kind of... Anyways, yeah, so uh, I don't know, I don't know, Jeb. I, I hear what you're saying. One of you guys educate me, and I should know this, but I confess I don't. What are the rules regarding um, displaced thresholds and and where you're allowed or required to touch down? Um, well, required is... I mean, you can use a displaced threshold 
zone at an airport for takeoff, for example. That's right. perfectly legal. Yep. Uh, the displace threshold is meant to get you over an obstruction or a possible obstruction on a standard, what, three, and a, three or three and a half degree glide slope? Right. To the touchdown point or, yeah. or to the threshold marks. Uh, now, there's not a, a far that I know of yeah. that says that you can't use a two degree or a six degree approach slope if you can get it down safely intact and not break anything. And, in fact, I know a couple of guys whose habits at airports with displaced thresholds because of obstructions at like wires or fences tend to use a deeper, steeper approach path, mm-hmm. which keeps them higher longer so that they come in over that. But they're coming in way steep compared to other people. Uh, and then there's the guys that uh, I've, I've actually seen this happen where the car bounced off the roof. I mean, the airplane bounced off the roof of a car without doing anything except denting the roof of the car uh, because a guy was dragging it in at an airport where the uh, access road, which is a public road, a main street through a town, was only about 75 feet past the end of the runway, the pavement. Right. So the display threshold there at a three-degree approach angle was designed to bring you in high enough to clear a a, a farm truck or a semi-truck, which frequent that road. And the display threshold, I think, is about 350 feet in that particular case. Uh, Dead Cow International has one for one-seven. That's to get you in over wires that are 85 feet to the north on the opposite side of a street. Right, the the infamous foam poles there. That uh, exactly, exactly, and those suckers get real big if you don't do it right. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, 4.5 degree glide path on one seven at the airport in question, a 5.25 degree glide path on runway three five. This is at our Texas airport where the collision occurred. Yeah, Jeb, go ahead. He's he's actually using data. Yeah, I know. He's looking at the info. Right? <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> he's actually using data. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you both a question now. Yeah. Where does it say that I can't land on the displaced threshold portion of a runway? I've never seen it. I asked this question before. And where does it told- say all that? I don't. I don't. Know. I don't know. You. you uh, it's too bad there isn't some place we could look. Well, you know, that's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. Okay. Um, you've, have you already done this? I'm typing it in right yeah, now. Yeah, I've got a screen full of data. Look, I'm looking at. Um, there basically is no regulation that says you must land short of the displaced threshold. I mean, you must land beyond the displaced threshold. Well, what if it is any- simply presumed that that is part of the runway? Okay. That there are very good reasons. That the run, the <clears throat> the threshold has been displaced. It could be bad pavement. It could be obstacles. It could be something else. Okay. Uh, it could be you know someone threw a bunch of nails out there. Who knows? Um, but there's nowhere in the regulations that I can find on a quick search that says you must land beyond the displaced threshold. It's presumed. It's it's just one of those things you you know to do because that's the runway. It's you're you come up in the displaced threshold area, you're short of the runway. Mm-hmm. Okay. But there is no real regulation that I've been able to discern here that says that. I just wanted to point that out. 
uh, now it's certainly careless and reckless to be you know landing in you uh, uh, know the displaced threshold. So the FAA is always going to have that for him or him or her. But uh, beyond that, there's nothing that really legally prevents us from doing that. Yeah, interesting. The, the displaced threshold is there to give you something to shoot for to help you clear something or miss something. And, you know, if you can miss that obstacle or miss that obstruction or not hit a car and land, you know, midway down the displaced threshold, you're legal. Mm -hmm. Uh, If, on the other hand, you ignore the displaced threshold uh, and the approach slope uh, advised, and there's no way in in the world that that approach that we just saw on the video was either 4.5 or 5.25 degrees. Uh, in that phase of flight, and something goes wrong, uh, you you might consider yourself a, a candidate to get a letter saying, we'd sure like to talk to you down at the FISDO. Yeah. Uh, because they're going to wonder whether you learned that part of your training when you should have. Yeah. Well, this guy was still in his training. This guy, is, the, the pilot has said that he's done. He, that's freaked him out so much that yeah. he's going to end his training and, uh, and, and not continue, which I think and is unfortunate. Yeah, that's, that, a, that's, that's a shame. shame. Dude, go back. Just use a steeper approach path, yeah. like the one that matches up with the Vazi that was out there. And look at it this way. The next time you screw something up or someone or you have a problem with an airplane, uh, it's probably not going to be as bad as this one. So, yeah, hey, I know, right? you got See? that out of the way already. <laughs> <laughs> hey, on that note, let me quickly jump in here and say welcome, folks, to uh, Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Uh, I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm here with my two good friends. Uh, uh, Dave Higdon's here. He's talking to you. You're back in Wichita, right, David? I'm back in Wichita. Yeah, how you doing? What's going on? Had a lovely weekend, and uh, had to work way too much of it, but managed to get out and have a little fun. Uh, kind of was spent unwrapping and catching up from NBAA last week. Yeah, so. I want to talk about that in a few minutes, but uh, I just kind of wondering how, how how's life? Is it how life, is it? Life is good. Is it getting too cold to ride the motorcycle, or what, what's? Uh... Well, it wasn't yesterday, uh, and I went to breakfast on it Saturday morning when it was thirty eight. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so far, so good. Yeah, cool. Hey, and also here's Jeb Burnside talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. How you doing, Jeb? Doing all right. You sound doing good right. today. I, you know, it's like yeah, do I? Long-time <laughs> listeners of this podcast uh, will, I don't know whether you guys, I don't know whether the listeners will be as thrilled by this as I, I think I and, Dave, and Jeb and Dave are, but uh, the, the infamous and legendary fiber connection, internet connection, that has been rumored for Jeb for like, I don't know what, two years now or something like yeah. that? All right, is finally up and running, and you've got a serious 21st century internet connection now. Yeah, um, you have just gone from one end of the spectrum to the other. Oh yeah, it's it's night and day. Um, and Jeb's uh, um, connection is so much faster that he actually started talking what we're hearing ten minutes ago. Yeah, I know. So he's ahead of us now. That was always the problem. As, as you know, I, I think some of the more you know tuned in listeners will realize is that uh, Jeb's internet connection didn't result so much in a qualitative difference to his to us hearing him but that there was a time lag that was often that jeb was often hearing things about a second behind us and it made it very difficult for you jeb to to jump into the conversation and i can already sense that 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 lag is 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 less if not gone um consider yourself screwed yeah i know i know so uh uh, anyway so this is terrific we're very jealous and very happy for you you, and uh, It's, it's um it doesn't take any getting used to at all. Yeah, and it's changed your whole lifestyle, internet-wise. 
Yeah, I right. I know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it has. Well, <laughs> right, we won't get into that. That's, that's I, not. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, and I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you from high atop Lookout Point in uh, Nottingham, New Hampshire, where it just almost snowed today. It just just was threatening to kind of start snowing, and any day now, we'll see whether that really happens. But uh, it's it's going to be that would be the first snow of the year for you. Uh, yes. Let me think about that. Yes. Wow. Um, the, we thought it was going to snow. The forecast, the early forecast for the Sandy Storm was that uh, we were going to get snow, but then we didn't. We just got a lot of rain. So you, you, I was going to, that was my next question. How did Sandy treat you? Um, we did, I mean, we were very, very lucky up here. Um, it's, uh, it, 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 the wind blew like crazy. The wind blew about as hard as I've ever seen it blow for like the better part of a day up here. And uh, and the power did go out. The power was out on two different occasions on that day um, for a grand total of about nine hours. But obviously, in the scheme of things, that was nothing. Um, I, obviously, a lot of people have been in, been extremely, um, um, I don't know if the right word is, injured, damaged um, by this whole thing. And uh, I was just looking at my phone. Ye gods, Alexandria, Virginia has a freeze warning tonight. <laughs> yeah, see? Well, that's, yeah. yeah, that's that's another, you know, part of the reality. We've got a freeze warning here, too. But uh, that, that's one thing. But but speaking of Sandy, the the what they're calling Superstorm Sandy, I just rolled my eyes if you couldn't hear that. Um, is uh, uh, well, you were you weren't in Lower Manhattan. Well, it was a big storm. I agree. I, it's the term superstorm that I'm rolling my eyes okay. at. Okay. No question, it was a huge storm, and and it, it was very very bad for a lot of people. Um, it's this this new term superstorm that I rolled my eyes at. What I, I, uh, I think it's been used before, but. The, the the conditions, I mean, the convergence of multiple storm systems of the strength and, and uh, uh, dynamics of what happened in New York, uh, it was kind of behind that because it no longer was just the hurricane that was part of the issue. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, and uh, obviously New York is still recovering. Um, coastal New Jersey as well um, got, got hammered. Well, and, uh, some of the folks that I was working with last week at uh, NBAA, uh, were just in a terrible bind because here they were working uh, and in positions and with responsibilities that they couldn't just run off from while at the same time back home, their home was losing part of its roof or their or the basement sump pump was failing and they were winding up with six feet of water down there. Uh, this is in the D.C. area. Uh, same thing, a friend of mine told me how happy he was that he decided to uh, relocate his airplane earlier this year than than he might have uh, had he not had some things work out differently because otherwise his airplane would have been in the path of the storm yeah uh, even if he wasn't so. what what have you heard about about uh, damage at uh, general aviation airports uh, through that part of the country in the I've, DC area the DC pilots list we're talking about uh, I know one guy's um, hangar roof was ripped off and, and slightly damaged his barren. There were a couple of other instances of like a, um, a shelter uh, or a hangar uh, roof coming off and, mm -hmm. and one or two airplanes got flipped, but that was throughout the entire D.C. area. Right. I've seen a number of reports of pictures of, of airplanes flipped. Uh, um, I'm looking at one right now that is being described as being at Hartford Brainerd Airport near Hartford, Connecticut. Um, I saw one of an airport of an airplane on its uh, on its backside uh, that was captioned as being at Frederick, Maryland, um, and uh, so uh, you know. 
I'm sure there is a lot more. I haven't heard from James. James, I believe James is up north this time of year. No, he's down south. Is he really? Yeah. He doesn't usually. Yeah, I had dinner with him Thursday night. Oh, but he's down for the show. Is his airplane down there, or is his airplane? Is he still down there? Was he down there for Sandy? I guess that's my question. Well, he decided to move down earlier than he normally uh, okay. would have, because of the convergence of uh, his work at NBAA and the timing on a couple of other things. Okay. So he got the hell out of out of the East Coast and yep. was relocated back to his, uh, uh, what is it, San Augustine yeah, day. Which technically is still the East Coast, but I get your point. Um, yeah, so he, he usually keeps his airplane up there at, uh, at um, what's it called? Caldwell, Caldwell New Jersey. Um, just over Caldwell, the- New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, anyways. Um, did you see, not a GA airport, did you see the pictures of LaGuardia? Yeah. Yes. That yes. was pretty intense. LaGuardia is basically underwater. I saw a picture of the ramp with a, one of the jetways you know, uh-huh. where the, where the wheels were, image, were yeah. in, in, the, in the water. Um, you know, I, I heard, I mean, and this was forecast. Before the, before the main part of the storm hit, they were saying they were expecting LaGuardia to go underwater. Is so it still closed? I don't know that. Um, I thought I had heard that all the airports were back open, but it's nah. a, you know it's a shame we don't have some. I'm looking. I'm looking here. Air, airports are open, but they're at a limited capacity because of the power problems that they're still dealing with. There, the stuff that they've got, a lot of it's running on backup equipment, uh, and that has limited that the uh, that has problems after a certain period of time because of the unavailability of fuel. Yeah, to run some of the backup stuff. Yeah, they're yeah. Apparently, they're having real gas problems here. Um, yeah, David, what were you were you just quoting a source on that one? I'm I'm looking real quickly at a headline from Wall Street Journal that says LaGuardia Airport reopens on a limited schedule, which is just what you said. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'm looking at modems. Yeah, I, I I remember seeing it. I'm not sure if it was yesterday, today, the day before. Way too many things. Uh, but they they were well at at work trying to get the water drained off LaGuardia and over at Teterboro and at Westchester and other places where they got a lot of wet got a lot of wet. Uh, about the instant the storm went past, uh, because of how long they knew this puppy was coming, there was a lot of positioning of equipment, uh, pumps, making sure that they had stuff available to jump in on this right out uh, right out of the box. And in talking to a couple of insurance brokers down in Florida on uh, Thursday afternoon, uh, they were counting their lucky stars at the damage at the airports where they've got coverage, including LaGuardia is one of them where this guy had some policies in effect, was not as bad as as they feared it would be. And that was largely a factor of the winds not being, you know, Category 3 or higher hurricane level. So... uh, but the service is going to be stilted in and out of there for some time to come because transportation, lower Manhattan, uh, Long Island, uh, Queens, back over in New Jersey, uh, it's just a nightmare. They're still clearing trees out of roads. They've got power issues someplace. The, the guy I feel sorry for is the guy that writes insurance on boats. Well, that too, yeah. But uh, but we're airplane people. Who cares about boats? 
No. Um, Jeb, you have a friend. You have a good friend who is a an airline pilot based out of LaGuardia. You haven't by chance yeah, you know, heard I have from not him. Talked have to him. He's, he's called me a couple of times, and I've always missed his call, and I need to get back to him and figure out what the lowdown is. Yeah. Because uh, he's got a lot on his plate right now, so yeah, I don't so, know. Anyways. Well, so our hearts go out to everybody, uh, everybody, not just the aviation people, but uh, who were who were affected by this incredible storm, this superstorm, and uh, um, but uh, superstorm standy. Yeah, and it's funny; it matches up big time like a Sandy that I dated in junior high school. Yeah, I know, right? No, I was thinking it's 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 a good thing we don't really have um, um, climate change happening. Otherwise, this could have been a bad storm. Oh yeah, that would have been terrible. Yeah, really. So. Hey, from the forums, uh, a listener, uh, let's see now, listener Cozy171BH uh, uh, has asked us uh, about the whole Pilot's Bill of Rights thing, and particularly the uh, the so-called overhaul of the NOTAM system. He says, uh, uh, I'm just wondering if anybody in the UCAP hangar with connections with the FAA has any insights of the direction that they will be taking with this. Um, do you guys have any idea what, you know, what this means? I mean, uh, uh, improving I, I the don't off the top. Well, I know exactly what he's talking about. Right. The, the pilot's bill of rights. Yeah. Um, included provisions to enhance, designed to. I mean, let me put it another way. Uh, enhance the NOTAM system. Uh, part of that included, as I recall, a um, a committee of in, uh, composed of industry uh, reps uh, in the FAA, um, making all the data available. Uh, free on a, on a dedicated website, um, take, looking at trying to improve um, the, uh, the ways in which they're coded and decoded, um, as well as uh, uh, just in, enhanced readability. Um, you know, it's, it's ironic. I'm sitting here looking at all the NOTAMs, uh, just a page, maybe a page and a half of NOTAMs for LaGuardia. There's a lot of stuff that's just in-app or OTS or Tango Uniform. No kidding. Yeah, right. Yeah, there really is. A lot of lighting is, is just forget about it. Um, I don't know. I, I, maybe they've got an ILS running. I, I, I presume they do. Uh, I don't know. But anyway, um, yeah, the NOTAM system is broken um, on several levels. Um, whether or not the Pilot's Bill of Rights provisions are going to have any effect on them, I don't know. Um I, let's let's use our magic box here. Yeah, well, I I just did and didn't really find anything new. Did the, so you said there was going to be a a, a, a quote unquote committee formed up? Did, did that actually get formed up? Do you know? Have you heard? That's part of the uh, uh, part of the I'm, search. I can certainly find out, but I don't uh, know offhand that it has been. Yeah, I I don't think the rulemaking committee has been appointed for that yet. Mm. And as far as speaking to Cozy One Seventy One BH. Uh, the quick and dirty of what you can expect and how fast runs like this, they'll form a group, they'll try to decide what they can do with it and whether there are any international regulatory implications they have to worry about. Uh, It'll get refined and then re-refined, and in about 18 months to two years, it'll become a notice of proposed rulemaking (laughs) that will find its way into the federal register at which point we'll have several months to, uh, several weeks to comment and if it's not so off the wall that it makes everybody go whiskey tangle freaking foxtrot uh then we may see the system actually improve uh and the funny thing is that that 
technology that we like to joke about is the actual ticket to making this as simple and streamlined as email and, and, and simpler than Twitter. Because all that coding, all that shorthand, uh, uh, all those uh, special uh, ways of expressing common things were all strung together in an age of telegraphy and then teletype, which uh, right. bandwidth was really small. Right. And some characters that we take for granted on a typewriter didn't exact it didn't actually exist on teletype machines. Right. So none of that really applies anymore. We should be able to get this uh I think they ought to just cut to the chase and run it through a decoder and put it out that way. Yeah. Well, well there are services that do that. Um <clears throat> but let me also point out that um um there is some organ the Notum system has been a train wreck for a long, long time. There have been some improvements of late. Uh, I don't know if they've been, you know, revolutionary, but they've certainly been evolutionary. Uh, in looking at this, this row under the stack of, of Notums for uh, LaGuardia, uh, if you look at it <clears throat> correctly, there is organization to it. The, the identifiers, the, whether it's a runway Notum or, or uh, some other type of Notum, all that is clearly... Um, uh, organized if you read from top to bottom and you read the columns the way the the, the uh, text lines up it, it's easier to identify what you need to look at um, they're organized by you know, all types of different subheadings um, in, a, in a typical briefing that didn't used to be the case mm -hmm. um, there have been a, a measurable improvement there have been obviously observable uh, improvements but can there be more? Absolutely. Yeah. And and having yeah. a repository for you know free access twenty four seven from you know anywhere just you know notums dot org or notums dot gov or something like that is a great idea too. Yeah, David, I'm shocked <laughs> to hear that you're cynical about the FAA doing this quick, quickly. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. But dude, dude, that wasn't cynicism. <laughs> that was what no, was no, it? No, that was SOP. Yeah, right. But don't worry about it. So uh, Senator Inhofe will come to our rescue. He'll. Uh, that's just the normal progression of something that uh, has the implications for causing somebody's job to move or get bigger or smaller. And uh, the regulatory impact of changes like this, it's going to vary according to the kind of user you are. Yeah, I know. Uh, none of this stuff ever happens quickly. I, boy, I, it'd be wonderful if it did. But going on you know, more than four years after the TSA's large aircraft security program proposal blew up in its face. That one's been stuck at OMB for three. Yeah. No, I was so, just you guys. You guys were you weren't you were just going to let my Senator Inhoff joke just go, right? Okay, that's probably wise. Uh, uh, well, you know what they say: X marks the spot. Yeah. <laughs> you'll, you'll never do lunch in this town again. <laughs> So uh, let's see. Now I don't know if it was last week or last episode or the episode. So the last couple of episodes we actually we do we delivered out of order. So I can't remember whether this was the last episode or the one before. But we were talking about um, um, all those uh, um, aircraft that were buried in Burma, and uh, and and as sort of an aside, 
we started fantasizing about maybe there'd be some other types of aircraft buried in Burma. And David, you were kind of going on about how, you know, uh, how almost orgasmic it would be if there were a mosquito aircraft buried in Burma. Did you see this video about a guy who has uh, built a working, flying, airworthy mosquito? Uh, Stand by a second. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, right. Thank you. TMI, TMI. Um, I know I brought it on. In New Zealand. Um, Now, it's not clear to me whether this is a true restoration or whether he's built one from plans i i kind of read it both ways at different times do you know the story i'm talking about have you looked at these videos i yeah i did look at the video and i've read the story and i confess i'm not completely clear on that either yeah Yeah. but uh it still is a very cool looking airplane there's this youtube video that i'm not looking at right now but i did look at earlier um has some cool shots of it flying um and uh the uh, the punchline of this story is that uh, the restoration was financed and owned by a U.S. citizen, and apparently they after soon after this video was shot, they packed it up and it's coming to the U.S. Cool so things. we may see this thing flying next summer at the during the air show season. That would you know follow David around and watch him oh, react. Oh man, uh, well why what is there about the mosquito, David? That makes you so you know excited. Well, first off, first off, there's the sound of one going through the air. Mm-hmm. which it has its own sweet distinction from a P-38 Lightning and is more than just twice yeah. as cool as a P-51 Mustang. Aren't we talking basically two of the same engines that were in the P-51 Mustang? Yeah. D- yeah. David, David, let's yeah. pause for a second yeah. here, David, and describe for us the uh, Mosquito. What's, it, what's its configuration? What's its, what's it well, look like? Mosquito is powered by two rolls uh, of Merlins, V12s, like the P-51 Mustang. Uh, They use gas-powered turbochargers like the P-38 Lightning, uh, unlike the Mustang, which uses a more mechanical charger. Uh, It's a twin with counter-rotating propellers like the P-38, except it's a plywood airplane, not a metal airplane. It's very light, very strong, extremely agile, mm-hmm. uh, and will carry. Uh, uh, well, they they used them as light attack aircraft, as light bombers, uh, recon, anti-submarine. Uh, they were pretty damn good in air-to-air combat. But this was a significant, big, significantly bigger airplane than a P thirty-eight Lightning. Right. That was a single cock. That was a single man short. I think you couldn't be more than five six or five seven and 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 fit into a, a lightning cockpit. Uh, this was a multi man crew. Uh, did a lot of bombing, a lot of long distance stuff, uh, and is just I don't know. I think it's the wood that makes it sound the way it does. Well, that could be. Now, just you've been comparing it to a P thirty eight Lightning, which they are both twin engine aircraft. The uh, the Lightning is a twin tail, twin boom kind of uh, uh, aircraft, whereas the Mosquito is a single single tail. You know, single. right? And it's a mid wing on a on a single fuselage, uh, which is big enough to have you know a bomb load and uh, a two person cockpit, uh, and just goes like spit. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. It just goes like steak. Yeah. That's, now that's the that's the lightning you're talking about. No, no, the, the, the mosquito. mosquito. Yeah, mosquito. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a mosquito funny. Outrun a lightning. It's know. almost funny looking airplane. It, it almost looks like it's front nose heavy. Um, everything is way out front, and uh, 
Um, obviously, you everything's... Know, the, the, the engine nacelles actually kind of look like they're out ahead of the nose of the airplane. But the nose of the airplane itself is really short. Yeah. Right. And and the cockpit is very far forward to my eye. And uh, um, it's a cool-looking airplane. It is, yeah. It's a cool-looking airplane. I, I hope I'll get an opportunity to get up close and personal with one and watch it fly. But uh, Very sexy airplane. And... Uh, really damage tolerant because it didn't have the same kind of failure modes or didn't react to bullets going through it the same as metal <laughs> airplanes. Well, but okay. I, I believe you, David, but if it was so damage tolerant, why did none of them survive? Uh, uh, I couldn't answer that. But then again, quite a number of airplanes that were that, that survived the war don't survive to today. Yeah, know, they're well, not out there flying in large numbers. Yeah, uh, if no. they're fly out there flying at all, uh, I, I couldn't tell you. They may have gotten converted to other work because of their capabilities. Uh, they may have been used to uh, remake the wood into furniture. Oh, wood! You know that's probably a factor right there. They they rotted and. Uh, well, no, they did, they didn't have metal. But what's that? They didn't have the metal. No, but I'm saying one of the reasons why the mosquitoes didn't survive 60, 70 oh, years oh, oh, is yeah. because they were made of wood and, and they disintegrated, whereas the aluminum aircraft were, more, more, you know, were less likely to just kind of you know, fade away. So maybe, anyways. Cessna Uniform Charlie Alpha Papa is cleared to 71 Kilo via Uncontrolled Airspace. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Frequency is once a week, and they squawk for about an hour 20. Cessna Uniform Charlie Alpha Papa, Rebecca is correct. Anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. Advise when ready to taxi. We here at the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast are very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. Thank you. What's next here? David, you were just alluding earlier to the fact that you were down in, in Orlando, right, for MBAA, the National Business Av Aircraft. What's, I'm sorry, what's MBAA? National, National Business Aviation Association. I, I know what the organization is. I'm just never good at these acronyms. Yeah, and so they had their annual convention uh, exhibit thing, um, and you were down there. Um, Jeb, did you go over there as well? I, I did not. Yeah. David, what was, the, what was the atmosphere? What was the tone at the show this year? Uh, it wasn't depressed. Uh, but it also wasn't gleeful. Uh, there was a uh, actually really good business activity, uh, according to a lot of the vendors and some of the airplane salesmen who talked to me. Uh, but the crowd itself seemed to be a little less uh, in numbers and a little lower in enthusiasm than last year. Uh, the vendor count was down. The display space that they rented was down. Uh, we saw, you know, a significant amount of empty floor space in a convention center where the first two years or three years that they were in that convention center, you, you know, they were begging for more ways to squeeze in more, more exhibitors because they were filling it up wall to wall. Uh, so the downturn, I think, continues to take 
something of a, uh, well, maybe not the downturn itself. There's still some impact from the downturn in that some companies figured out that they could rent smaller exhibit space footage mm-hmm. and still do as much business. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of people in the trade show business are, are coming to that conclusion. Um, and some of them shifted uh, the focus of their exhibits to the static display area and had only a fraction of the space that they used to have on the convention hall floor. Uh, a couple of outfits just didn't have anything on the convention hall floor where they had in the past. Focused all their efforts on the on the setup that they had at the static display at Orlando Executive. Uh, the uh, the show lacked any big new airplane announcements like we usually well well like a lot in the media they, they feed on it. Well, if there's a year without a new product announcement, wow, the industry must be going to hell. No, actually, they're just catching up on last year's announcements and mm-hmm. the year before. Uh, this, the exception to that was kind of interesting, and that was uh, what I'm going to start calling Beechcraft, because that's the name they say they're going to operate under oh. when they emerge from bankruptcy in, right. in this is January. Right. Uh, they showed us uh, some uh, PowerPoint that showed the possibility of three new single-engine turboprop models kind of filling space between the uh, Baron and the Premier, which is going the way of the Hawkers, uh, and the uh, uh, Baron and the King Air 90. Uh, Two of them in that spot, actually. And they're going to be, they say, uh, employing the fuselage winding technology that they developed for the Premier and the Hawker 4000, uh, this tow winding process in the Viper machine, which I think is one of the things that they got right in post-bankruptcy. It'll be fully uh, paid for. Uh, It won't have any debt to drag down the cost. So they'll be able to get into creating a fuselage for a new airplane at a lot lower expense and a lot less effort and fewer man hours than than they ever have on a on a, on a King Air model. Mm-hmm. Uh, single engine turboprop, I would guess if I was a betting man, it'd be a Pratt & Whitney engine, although that's not a slam dunk, but that'd be my expectations, yeah. a PT-6. Uh, anybody's guess for avionics, it's a very competitive business right now. Uh, and probably 2015 before we have an airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was the big new plans. Uh, most of the other outfits there were doing fine-tuning to models that they announced last year. Uh, the major exception being to that one being Cessna, which was showing off a mock-up of an unnamed, unlaunched jet model that I think will kind of uh, go into the space where the CJ-2 is now. So time will tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Nothing stands still. And then Nextent Aerospace uh, was uh, doing a bumper business with demo flights and people through its stand. Uh, these are the folks that launched a company around the concept of remanufacturing, and that's the, the word they use, remanufacturing, in this case, the BeachJet 400A into an airplane with new engines, new engine mounts, new nacelles, uh, new vibration isolators, all new interior, and all new flight deck. Uh, for about half the price of what the uh, BeachJet 400A was going for before they suspended uh, production of it. So 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there's about 800 of those airframes out there. Uh, Nextent is, uh, was able to demonstrate some really impressive numbers uh, about the change in performance range and per mile direct operating cost of their version versus the original airplane. And I suspect with a cabin that was made more roomy and more airy by the way they designed the layout and the way they're using the side panels and thinner, thinner, uh, uh, they're, they're eking out about a three quarters of an inch, it feels like, in width. That when you combine that with the way they designed the, the seating plan and the relativity of the seats to windows, uh, the, the refreshment area and a lavatory makes the airplane feel bigger. And they didn't make the fuselage bigger at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A- any, uh, any buzz or talk down there um, about user fees? Um, it it seems to me that business. <laughs> what? Well, here's 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 the way the the political buzz talk was. Uh, the, according to a couple of the opening speakers, uh, including one member of Congress, uh, business aviation is enduring an all-out war against it by well, the uh, current administration. Uh, because of one use of the phrase fat cats uh, quite some time ago and the refusal to take user fees out of the budget and the uh, insistence on debating the wisdom of the accelerated depreciation that business aviation enjoys but many other business industries do not. Yeah, uh, Those are all co- fair conversations to have. But structuring the uh, the conversation around there's a war on business aviation by this particular administration, when the user fee proposals go back, every president to Jimmy Carter, I think is at best specious. Okay, Jeb, are you back? Have yeah, you have no, you got I'm, yourself I'm, under control? I, now? I, yeah, I'm here. I'm. I'm fine. so happy I can just I'm, provide that, you with all this entertainment. No, I just thought it was, <laughs> of course user fees came up. Well, and I guess and I and I guess that the reason I was asking was because the the president has a fairly specific uh, uh proposal on the table if you right. will um that 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 kind of very carefully not carefully I but intentionally or unintentionally targets, you know, turbine aircraft. That's business aviation. And so that's why I was wondering if there was any particular kind of conversation there about this. Um and uh no, no, it's a war on all of us. It's a war on uh, all of us. Yeah, okay. uh, it, it, apparently, from the view of some people, uh, the president won't be satisfied until uh, no business jet can fly anywhere ever. Although, like his uh, movements to uh, to deprive everyone of their handguns is non non existent. I, 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 yeah, I was just okay. going to say. I was just going to say. He's, he, he won't be coming for the airplanes until after he's got the handgun. So we got right, which means we, we got lots of time because nobody started coming for the handguns. You know, and you would think that the president would, be, you know, the, you know, the most impressive and powerful and useful, you know, biz jet in the world belongs to the president. And uh, why doesn't he understand how useful this stuff well, is? It, it's it's. Forgive I've me for forgive ahead, me Jeff. for saying this, but it it, it might be true. That the president used that phraseology, used that example uh, um, to make a point and to maybe try to pick up some votes. 
it would not be that could that could be true. It could also be true that some organizations are using that as a lever to ensure that uh, uh, people pay them dues. No. Okay. I'm shocked right. to hear that that, that might happen. That also could be true. All right. Okay. All right. Last, well, I don't know, one of those last most recent two episodes, and I can, again, I'm confused as to which one it was, but we talked about a um, little airport up in uh, Washington State, or I'm sorry, Oregon, I believe, um, uh, Pearson um, Airport in uh, um, near, uh, where? Near uh, Portland, Oregon, I believe. And... Uh, <laughs> So we were oh, just kind yeah, of, that. and they were, and they're the they're the subject of a proposed, uh, really nasty bit of airspace that was uh, just really going to put, like basically a box around the airport that was only going to have allow one airplane moving in it at a time, and um, and and pretty ugly stuff. In the forums, um, a a handful of our listeners have uh, chimed in with a little bit more detail on on what this whole thing is all about, and uh, uh, for starters, I, one of them kind of clarifies, uh, David, you were using uh, dead cow as an example of how small airports can operate just fine near big airports. And I don't think he disagrees with you, although he does uh, point out that uh, this Pearson apparently has a lot more ops than, than Dead Cow and, and is, it's much more active. Um, he also, uh, I think he observes the fact that, that uh, where uh, Dead Cow is off to the side of uh, of. Uh, of Wichita, um, Pearson is kind of almost on the extended center line. So he says that's one difference, but but he does say that this is a, a terrible, terrible um, new proposed regulation, airspace regulation, um, and and a couple of listeners here seem to think that it has simply to do with the fact that um, the closeness of the flight paths for these two aircrafts result in a lot of airline TCAS warnings, um, and. Uh, and that, right, all of which have to be reported. Yeah, and that and that it's just because the TCAS warnings, even though they're not accurate, that's just they're just an artifact of an odd air, airspace situation. Um, that that uh, they're talking about clamping down on this little then, airport. Then why don't they just you know they've done it for uh, so many other situations? Issue a special notum that says, or a special uh, uh, far that says. That TCAS alerts on the approach to 10 left at PDX uh, don't have to be reported. I, I, sure. I mean, do, have they done that at other airports? Ah, they've done similar things at other airports. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then that makes a lot of sense to me. I don't know. I mean, maybe that's what they're pursuing. I just, uh, um, but uh, we. Well, I'm I'm curious about, and I'm not questioning his data, but I'm, I'm curious about where the the numbers came from for this because I'd sure love to take a look at them, and I can think of other reasons why having that kind of data source that's maybe something I should be familiar with, but not right off the top. And yeah. what are the qualifying ops today? If it's contacts with the tower, uh, yeah, I can conceive ICT only being four hundred and fifty. Tower, tower ops today. Uh, if it's IFR ops, uh, uh, then ICT's got a lot more traffic than yeah. 450 ops a day. Well, I wouldn't get. To, I think he was basically agreeing with you, David. But I think he was doing. No, well, no, my just, airport is better curious. than your I, airport. Like I say, to, you know, I'm I'm fine with the data being what the data are. Yeah. Uh, but I'd like to know where it came from because I'd like to access it from time to yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, too bad you couldn't go into the forums and like correspond with this guy and. Uh, or it's you know it's 
too bad that you know there's not some device or system. Yeah, okay. That we could use. Okay. The other thing uh, we were talking about when we were talking about this, uh, the uh, the Portland uh, uh, class Charlie. Uh, Charlie, I think we decided it was, is uh, that there was an odd cutout in this sort of uh, two o'clock position um, on that uh, on that airspace, and uh, it, it, although it was a very very distinct circular cutout, it there was no airport in the cutout, and we were wondering what that was all about. And a couple of listeners pointed out something that I qu- I actually discovered myself um, separately by going and doing some Google Maps, uh, Google Earth. Um, satellite view research, and that is that there did in fact used to be an airport in that circular cutout, um, an airport called Evergreen, and uh, and that has is now closed and and defunct, and and it's kind of sad. You you look at it in the Google Earth satellite view, and you can actually see the remnants of the runway that's kind of half paved over, and um, it's a, one of those sad situations. Uh, a bit of trivia here. Um, I, I I was wondering about Evergreen, and when we were looking at those charts last time, I, I was trying to find evergreen because i actually landed at evergreen once a long long time ago a bunch of us flew up from the bay area for a a big fly-in um well long fly-in it was not terribly big it was probably half a dozen airplanes but we all all flew up there and hung out at, at evergreen field for the day and it was a cool little airport but even then it was clear that it was kind of really really tangled up in that in that portland airspace and uh, you know you, you uh, it's sad, but I'm not surprised that that uh, that ever evergreen is is no more. But that's what that cutout is all about, and uh, hasn't been 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 you know um, what would be the word dis dis uh, the cutout would be disenfranchised. No, that's not the word. <laughs> There's a word in there someplace. It'll come to me in a minute. Anyway, establishment, Charian. No, no, that's not it either. Um, so uh, evergreen. So that's the follow-up on uh, the Pearson Airport thing. Oh, did you figure out where you might get the data? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll post a question in the forums, and we'll ask. Yeah, there's a, here, here's, here's um, PDX, and 2009 had 226,548 aircraft movements, according to this data. Okay. And movements, okay. total movements. Yeah. What, that's what, a broad what, definition. What it source are you looking at, Jeb? But I'm sure if we found some FAA data, let's see. Uh, FAA. <laughs> what was that? Chica-chica. Yeah, that's an important part of that's the me, search that's process. Mentally shifting gear. Yes, that's right. Well, while Jeb is is uh, is researching here, let's see what's the next thing on the on the list here. Uh, Pearson. Uh, um, so. Le- who would have thought LaGuardia would be a trendsetter? You were talking about how you're not sure whether some of the instrument approaches are back. Um, what's this story about the uh, David? I think you put this on the list that the FAA is talking about um, eliminating, uh, for cost reasons, a whole bunch of, of instrument approaches around the com- country. Is yeah. this true, and is it a good idea? No, it's not a good idea. I was talking to a couple of guys with their traffic service uh, at NBAA who. Uh, I asked him about the progress in uh, starting to rework things like departures and arrivals around WAS technology. And they're walking this fine line between the ability to do this and the desire to move in that direction and the slow equipage rate that seems to be uh, uh, happening in uh, people adopting to uh, uh, ADSB for next gen. And, and ADSB, right now, the, by far the leading position source is a WAS GPS. 
Well, and WASP GPS gets you all sorts of new approaches that you can't do with the old instrument approach, uh, the instrument uh, approved GPS and on and on. And the comeback was, you know, we're we're making progress on this. We've started to try to set priorities for uh, nav nav aids that we're going to be decommissioning in in light of the budget concerns and the fact that with WAS we really won't need so many of these anymore. Uh, I was talking about VORs and in some cases ILSs in in some of the more technically difficult places to support them. Uh, and he said, and then along the way, we're going to start working down the number of approaches that we maintain, which was the word. That was, that was the word that keyed on this whole thing, right. the approaches that they maintain. Because for instrument approaches to remain valid and be considered uh, uh, technically safe and, and, and operable, the FAA has quality control crews that go out and fly these. Right. And they don't get flown as often in some instances as we talked about a few months ago, where the place where the trees had grown into the approach. Yeah, path. I was, I was, that right. came to mind. I was thinking, they, they, and they always so, do such a good job of keeping these instrument approaches in good shape. But that's so they, they're starting to look at how they can prioritize the decommissioning, for lack of a better word. That's the word of a lot of old approaches that either yes, okay, never were high volume or the technology is replaced their need. <clears throat> for example, you know, I have a hard time finding anybody who's not done it on a check flight who's flown an NDB circle circling approach lately. They've done it, but they've done it off their GPS. What mm -hmm. is it? And a DME arc. That's another one. Uh, these things have been kind of supplanted by the ease and precision of GPS uh, capabilities. And they don't want to maintain nav aids that people aren't using. And they don't want to have to do quality control on approaches that can be replaced or superseded more cost-effectively with something based on WAS GPS. Or they just do away with it altogether because nobody's using it. They're using WAS GPS in a different approach. Right. How, but it's all part of the natural progression. How does it work to decommission an, a navigator or an approach? Is it Can the FAA do this unilaterally, or do they have to go through a whole NPRM process? Or how does it work? Well, there's a there's a notification process, and they publish a notice that they plan to decommission. And usually, the uh, alphabet groups get a chance to weigh in mm -hmm. uh, because of that. And uh, then after that, uh, they publish a notice in the uh, Federal Register. Uh, they put out a NOTAM, and it doesn't show up on the next chart cycle. Right. But it, it or won't be. They pull the switch on the machine. There'll whichever. be some. There'll be some warning so that the users can chime in uh, that if they think a, a navigator approach that's valuable is getting unfairly cut. Oh right? yeah, and this goes on with some regularity now, okay. uh, where they decide to decommission old approaches simply because maybe a supporting piece of equipment got decommissioned, mm -hmm. and the equipment was necessary to the integrity of the pro the approach, so they. Decommission the equipment and cancel the approach. Yeah. Okay. And then it comes out of the charts and plates. It comes off the list. It comes out of the databases. 
And, you know, for anybody who doesn't update their charts, plates, and, 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 and such uh, very often, this is one of the reasons why you should do that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Jeb, did you find it? I forget now what you were even supposed to be looking up. I'm looking for <laughs> movement data at uh, Wichita and at uh, at uh, Portland. I couldn't find it readily. I couldn't. Com- I couldn't find apples to apples. So we'll have to put that one aside. All right, we'll we'll, we'll talk to uh, to uh, PA32 dude in the uh, in the forums and uh, find out what his source was for all that data. Finally, uh, so. This last story. Finally? Yeah, what was it? I know, huh? Um, this last story on the list today, uh, this time, is, uh, you know, if I'm, I'm, getting a little, I'm getting a little jaded about these kinds of stories. Um, Canadian researchers fly on pure biofuel. Um, apparently, a report out of Canada that uh, a group up there has uh, developed a, a biofuel that, that you can power an airplane with and, and uh, um, you know. I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I want these things to be true. I want this to, there to be, a, 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 you know, an alternative like this. But so far, they've always been, you know, kind of, um, you know, disappointing. Um, the only good thing about this one, the only good thing about this particular one is so one of the things they're touting is this is a Canadian firm or Canadian research organization that's been doing this. And and apparently they're making it from some sort of native Canadian plant life, um, which is also cool that Canadians are trying to build up a business here. Apparently they're making it from, let's see now, um, a drought tolerant Caranada. Um, apparently also known as an Ethiopian mustard plant. And so I want to know if you're making fuel from an Ethiopian mustard plant, can we call it mustard gas? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <sighs> yeah? How did you get in here? <laughs> I think it, it, it only counts as mustard if you can put it on a hot dog. <laughs> Anyways, are you guys at all familiar with this, uh, this biofuel? Is there anything here? This is a story from AvWeb. Um, and uh, calling oh, it, is, was it on AvWeb? Because I got a release straight straight from the NRC. Yeah, well, that's because you're special. Um, Canadian researchers fly on pure biofuel, calling it a quote historic milestone for the aviation and sustainable en- energy industries. Canada's National Research Council has conducted what it says is the world's first civilian flight using 100% biofuel. See, that sentence right there makes me suspicious. Um, Why is that? It's just too over the top. It's like, you know, first... Well, 100% states that they're not blending it with kerosene. Yeah. Okay, so many of the demonstrations that we've seen and read about were milestones of, of, of of a semi nature. That was they were a half a milestone. Uh, they were using a biofuel produced by some wonderful process using some great to grow crop, and then they hedged their bets by burning it with a blend in, in a blend of fifty percent jet A, and that still makes it. You know, if the if the if the cost can be brought in line. That still makes it an interesting prospect uh, for blending because you can reduce how much you use petroleum-based stuff. So them using 100% of their biofuel stock and not blending it with something, is uh, it kind of changes the equation. Yeah. The phrase that jumps out at me here is that uh, this company, uh, the private enterprise, including Agrisoma Bioscience, Inc., which is now making... Commercial quantities 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd, I'd like I'd, I'd like to know more about that, and I'll have to bring a press contact about that. Yeah. Now, just to, to be clear here, I, I, I misstated this, or I misimplied something earlier. It, it, so the test aircraft here apparently was a Falcon 20, which is a bizjet, um, which is obviously a turbine. And uh, and so this is not a gasoline replacement. That's what John and Martha King fly. Yeah, this is not a gasoline replacement. This That's is not correct. a hundred low lead replacement. This is a a jet A replacement. I'm I'm probably oversimplifying it, but um, it's uh, which is still a good thing. But uh, still a good thing. And chances are, if they can make kerosene out of it, uh, that there's a possibility of making something more volatile like gasoline out of it because they actually kind of come from the same hydrocarbons yeah hopefully hopefully anyways shout outs what do we got? i'm intrigued by this falcon being having its tail sniffed by t33 no 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 this is just too much <laughs> having it's sorry you gotta explain to people what you having mean by its that tail yeah sniffed. i know i know okay having its tail sniffed by the uh how did he get in here i know huh david I don't know what to tell you. They say that they had a sniffer analyzing the emissions. That's uh, yeah, sniffing the tail. That okay? Shout outs. I'm begging you. <laughs> <laughs> I always knew we could make him beg. Yeah, right. Uh, I got one. You guys got any? Um, I had one. I can't. Remember. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, my shout outs to our buddy Steve Tupper. Uh, who uh, uh, right about the time we're recording this has uh, has uh, uh, issued a, a new episode of the Airspeed podcast, um, and the reason this is they're always significant because it's a cool podcast. But the reason this one particular one is significant to me is that uh, some time ago, quite a while ago actually, uh, Steve uh, recorded an interview with me. He uh, seemed to think that that I had something to say, and so uh, we we got on the phone for a couple hours one night and chatted about all thing all kinds of things. Uh, aviation related and new media related and uh, had a good old time talking and uh, he took large portions of it maybe all of it i don't know and uh, and edited it together into an episode of airspeed which uh, has uh, just gone on to the net uh, today and uh, um well I, there goes the neighbor yeah i know well as as tupper points out that i'm late to the game here you guys appeared on airspeed long ago so um apparently it was only fair that i get my shot and uh but uh, I thank Steve. It was uh, I, I, to be honest with you, I had kind of forgotten what we talked about. I remembered that we did this, but it, it you know it wasn't high in my mind. And uh, and when he announced the the other night that it was online, now I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what did I, what, what did I say? Have I embarrassed myself? And so I spent some time this afternoon listening to the interview again. It was very interesting to listen to myself giving an interview where I've that was so long ago that I forget how I answered things, you know, it's like, I'm listening, I'm going, Hmm, I wonder what Jack has to say about this. You Your know? entire career passes. In front of <laughs> yeah, I know. Huh? And, uh, so, uh, it's, uh, I, I wasn't totally horrified by it. And, uh, uh, some people are saying some kind things about it on the, on the internets, uh, since it, it, it appeared. So, uh, um, mostly I thank Steve for, uh, for his confidence in me and for, uh, for a nice conversation we had way back when in like May or something like that. So, a lot of things have happened since we had that conversation, but it was a good one. That's my shout-out. I got one. Go. This is a shout-out to my favorite pilot and town uh, and, and city uh, councilman, uh, Jamie Beckett, 
who uh, this past weekend uh, launched uh, the uh, second novel in his career uh, called To the Lifeboats. As a novella, that's uh, I think he's going to be doing five parts. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. That's what the link's for. Uh, for the Kindle, and if you belong to one of these uh, services, you may even be able to get it as a loaner for free. Although I'd love to see Jamie actually make a nickel off of it. Uh, but it's a really intriguing sci-fi story. Jamie Beckett's our old buddy who's on the uh, Winter Haven uh, City Commission. He's an airport booster. He's a pilot. He's a CFI. He's an ANP. Uh, he's got the flightmonkeys.com website. And uh, his prior novel was... Uh, Something that kept me entertained the first few days of a uh, rather unusual October, November for me about six years ago. The book was called Burritos and Gasoline. And uh, for a guy who uh, was uh, basically stuck with nothing but the book and cable daytime TV to watch, the book was uh, by far the superior alternative. So congratulations on the new launch, Jamie. Hope it sells well. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow, uh, wow, I need a cigarette after that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> the burrito. <laughs> the, uh, oh, see, no, right. the burrito book is also available as a Kindle book as well. So uh, that's how I got it. And, uh, see, now, I did not know that. It, I got the autographed hard copy. Yeah, ooh. Try to get your Kindle copy autographed. Yeah, well, that's because you're special. Um, so what else? De- uh, Jeb, did you figure out what it was? Yeah, uh, Southwest Airlines. Um, just started service to Key West from Tampa. Oh, cool. Oh, wow. So it means they have service to Key West from Manchester, New Hampshire, which is more, more exactly. much more important. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And uh, they're going to open up service from New Orleans. Mm-hmm. But they've, exactly. but they've pulled out. Well, they didn't pull out of Sarasota, but uh, their, their acquisition, AirTrans, they, they, did. They pulled out AirTrans, yeah. which... Okay. I see. I was real excited when 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 Southwest bought AirTrans. I'm thinking, oh, this is cool because now they'll I'll be able to get a flight from Manchester to to Sarasota. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, nope, wasn't meant to be. Anyways, yeah. I uh, I just bought a couple of tickets at Thanksgiving uh, out of Tampa, and uh, <laughs> you'll have to use a stall warner on this. Shit. That got real, you know. <laughs> Well, how's that? In what way? <laughs> Just uh, uh, not the not the money I expected to have to pay. Uh, high or low? High. Much higher than I thought. Oh yeah. What, to go to Key West over Thanksgiving? No, no. To uh, to schlep my kids down here from D.C. to Tampa. Ah, oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Over Thanksgiving? Yeah. yeah. That's probably yeah, part of it. There's your hook. Yeah, I know. Still, I was like, what? Anyways, so yeah, you're gonna uh, so. I no, thought I you just, were going to say. Just, I just thought it was, you know, Southwest is always so scrappy and, uh, uh, you know, sticking in, in their, their thumbs in everybody's eyes. I, I thought that was a pretty cool thing for them to do. Just yeah. Open up another network from Tampa to, to Key West. It's, yeah. No, yeah. I like I like Southwest. That's yeah. probably my favorite of the airlines that I've traveled over the last couple of years. And, uh, um, and, because uh, they, well, <laughs> You know, it's, I did, wasn't on a list now. We, we, this is something we should have talked about. Did you see the uh, the uh, safety announcement video that Air New Zealand I did see that. Yeah. was doing? That right? was cool. This is very Southwest-ish. I, th- I kept thinking of Southwest because Southwest is notorious for doing safety announcements that are kind of fun. Um, interestingly, not unlike our disclaimers being kind of wacky. And uh, um, turns out that these wacky 
disclaimer safety things are actually considered better, not just goofing off, that they get people's attention and as a result, you know, uh, arguably, you know, are, are heard more. And so uh, so Southwest doing it kind of funky is a good idea. And, and New Air New Zealand has one, uh, a video one that uh, is all kinds of takeoffs on, uh, on what is it, Hobbit, um, the Lord of the Rings. Right. That's kind the of one thing. I was thinking about. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, it's very, very cool, very creative, and uh, um, you know, so it's a it's a YouTube video. I'm sure if people uh, searched on YouTube for uh, you know Air New Zealand safety announcement, they'd find this video. Anyways, I've never understood this theory that important information can't be imparted in a in an entertaining and enlightening way. That it has to be deadly dull and boring to get through, but. Hey, that's the way some people seem to function. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It works for us. The not the not boring way. The, the well, the funniest flight briefing that I ever had was a Southwest flight on a Christmas day from uh, uh, D.C. to uh, to Louisville, and uh, <laughs> they had us laughing so hard, all fifteen of us on the airplane. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> That they came down the aisle and said, "Come on, everybody, come up front. We'll have a party." <laughs> All right. All right. Any other shoutouts? Time to stick uh, a fork. No. Okay. That's Jeb Burnside. Jeb's a uh, freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor in chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. What's going on, Jeb? You working on anything fun? Uh, working on the magazine. Yeah. Um, uh, got a deadline later this week, so I've got. Um, an article by there's some guy named Higdon. Uh, I forget what man. Uh, there goes the neighborhood. Yeah, there goes the neighborhood. Uh, another one by our, our very own Amy Labota uh-huh. um, on uh, uh, engine monitors. Um, but this is for the book you're putting together this week, so when that'll hit the news, the quote, hit the unquote, stand, quote unquote newsstands uh, later uh, this month, first of uh, uh, December. Very cool. Anything else, yeah. or tell us where um, we can find you on the internet. Um, no, not really. That's pretty much my focus here for the last couple of days and the next few days. Yep. And on the internet, you are at? Oh, uh, jeburnside.com. Uh, you can find uh, the magazine at aviationsafetymagazine.com. Uh, net. I pop up there occasionally as well as on AvWeb. Mm-hmm. And Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, what have you been working on? Well, you've told us about some of this stuff. Any NBAA stories that you can tell us about now, or are we going to have to wait? Uh, Most of them are going to have to wait on, but the uh, Nextant 400 XT, uh, it's a report on a flight demo where, in this case, I got to play the customer. Mm Mm-hmm. And experience it from a whole different level. Cool. What publication is that going to be in? That's going to be in World Aircraft Sales Magazine's December issue, which will be out right after Thanksgiving. Cool. And where can people find you on the internet in general? In general, avbuyer.com, aea.net, aviationsafetymagazine.com. And uh, I actually got some new URLs that as soon as I get email active there, We'll have those to go with, too. Cool. 
And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can uh, check out my uh, latest Kindle eBooks. I also have some books uh, on Amazon in the Kindle uh, bookstore. Uh, in my case, it's uh, the collection of my Around the Field columns. Uh, volume 1 is there. I'm frantically trying to get Volume 2 ready to go. But uh, they are, in general, the stories of the people, places, and planes of the Oshkosh fly-in. And How do they charge Kindles in the Amazon? <laughs> You can learn about my Amazon Kindle books uh, by going to Amazon.com slash author slash Jack Hodgson. And in general, learn about me at JackHodgson.com and AroundTheField.net. Big thanks to Jeff Ward, as always, for his help with the show notes and in the forums. Uh, please take a few minutes and check out Echo, the general aviation online media channel. That's at UncontrolledAirspace.com slash Echo. All so sorts of old clips from uh, the uh, early years of uh, Uncontrolled space. Uh, some fun stuff there. And don't forget you uh, to check out the uh, rest of the uh, UCAP website. You can chat with us directly and with many of your fellow listeners in the Uncontrolled Airspace forums. Uh, you can see who's doing what on the New Ratings webpage of fame and much, much more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, was there something you were going to tell us? Well, yeah. Go fly. Live a long time because time flints spent flying okay yeah go fly live long because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan bye and that's enough talking let's go flying and he keeps practicing this he'll get it right eventually